Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. This week, Pocket Dan Grabham is here to talk about the UK government's decision on Huawei, its part in the UK's 5G infrastructure and how it will affect consumers over the next couple of years. And I talked to Nick Holroyd, the Technical Director and Chief Designer for Inuos Team UK in the 36th America's Cup, about how they're using data to bring home a victory in the world's oldest international sporting event. And Rick Henderson joins us to talk about the PlayStation 4's latest exclusive, Ghost of Tsushima. Is the new open world adventure any good? Stay tuned to find out. But first, Dan, back to you. Tell us more about the Huawei 5G announcement. So the UK government has basically U-turned on its early decision from January mm. when it said that networks could use up to 35% of Huawei kit in their non-core networks. Um, and it's now said that basically all Huawei kit from in 5G networks has got to go by 2027 and they can't install any new kit after the end of this year. So pretty, pre- pretty big decision. Um, and it's going to delay the rollout of 5G for everybody by around two to three years, um, according to the government. That's quite a drastic move. Do you think it's justified? Well, I mean, it's 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 difficult because we don't have the evidence to hand to say whether it's justified or not. Certainly, the government's hand has been forced by the US. Um, and there's obviously a whole issue around that as to whether um, the UK government are letting the US government influence policy. Um Certainly, um, the, the the key the key thing that's happened is that in mid May, um, the US decided that they wouldn't allow Huawei to use any US technology in their in their equipment. So basically, they were they'd previously tried to stop them trading in the US, and then they've basically said that US companies can't supply um, tech and know how and, and chips and whatever else to to. to to be in in this equipment and that was pretty drastic and that essentially means that um the 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 kind of trustworthiness of of this equipment cannot be guaranteed to the us and therefore the uk as a a big partner of the us have followed suit for a lot of people they'll see huawei as a phone brand that's obviously currently under pressure based on on what you've just said they won't necessarily know that Huawei is in the infrastructure and has been for what, 20 years, I think, something like that. It's pretty much the backbone for 2G, 3G and 4G. How much difference is this going to make to the average listener of the Pocalypse podcast? I mean, essentially, it's not going to make a difference in terms of the you know the availability of 5G handsets over the next year or the, the um, ability to... Um, to pick up 5G signals where you can already. What it will mean is that um, the, f- the rollout will be slower. So at the moment, we've got 5G available in a lot of urban areas in the UK, um, but not smaller towns. Now, the, the outlook over the next few years is probably that 
it will come 5g will come to those smaller places less quickly um it would also mean that um there will be the, the reliance on, on 4g will last longer essentially so that um you know 3g will get switched off um and basically the 4g coverage that, that exists at the moment will, will be beefed up anyway that's that that's part of the the whole plan to switch off 3g um but it essentially means that you might be able to buy or you you can obviously buy 5g phones already but you might be able to buy a 5g iphone from september that actually you won't be able to use in your in your smaller town for a year um different than you would have previously ultimately the the whole huawei coming out of the coming out of the network means it will probably be replaced by someone else like ericsson or something along those lines so we will still see 5g we'll still see the same capabilities that people are excited about the manufacturers are excited about you know the network's excited about it. you just it will just take a little bit longer to get there i suppose because now they've got this additional issue of of saying all right we've got a, all that kit we've put in we've now got to take out yeah and there's additional cost as well i mean bt uh, who own ee obviously um have estimated the cost of this program at about 500 million pounds and obviously that money's got to come from somewhere um and where's it going to come from it's going to come from the consumer event you know eventually um and although we won't see it and we won't be able to compare it to to you know our bills with if we had huawei kit i mean the 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 essential reason why huawei has managed to um be the market leader in 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 the tele telecom space is that they are cheaper than rivals and obviously there's other you know there's there's going to be costs that networks have to absorb now, I mean, this doesn't necessarily affect all networks in the same way. EE are particularly affected, um, but Vodafone used some of their kit. O2 were quite careful um, not to use so much Huawei kit, and um, 3 have been careful not to use so much Huawei kit, especially in their core networks. But they still use a lot of Huawei kit in the in the, in the the transmission of the signals in the cell towers and, and elsewhere. So, there, you know, there, there, is a, there is a lot of equipment that needs to, be, needs to come out. The 2027 date means that it, the, it is mitigated a bit, you know, because if they said it had to be happened by next year, that would be a massive problem because mm-hmm. uh, it wouldn't be practically possible. And also, um, you know, would obviously cost a lot more. But actually giving a giving a longer date means that some of that equipment will obviously be become end of life anyway. Now, we've seen the final question I have is we've seen a couple of big announcements from uh, some smartphone manufacturers in the last couple of weeks about 5G handset prices coming down. Obviously, there's still talk about iPhone, Apple launching the iPhone 5G later this year. If you're a consumer thinking about getting into 5G, does this make a difference? Should you still go for it? You should still go for it if you live in somewhere that's got 5G already, I would say. But if you live in a in a, a, a town that hasn't got much prospect of getting 5G over the next year or two, um, I think that it does give food for thought because you actually you're buying a device and paying more for it that you don't actually need. Um, and so, the, you know, the, there is a there is a definite question there as to whether, um, you know, that that is worth it. Um, but, you know, we have to be still be looking at within the next two to three years that actually 5G will come to most um, uh, urban areas and towns in the UK, even if um, it takes longer to come to rural areas. Still to come, Rick gives us his verdict on the open world epic Ghost of Tsushima. Um, I love the world. The game world is incredible. Uh, Sucker Punch clearly are 
massive fans of Japanese cinema and specifically samurai cinema. The America's Cup is the oldest international sporting trophy in the world. The cup originated in 1851, predating the modern Olympics, was designed to showcase the best of British technology and the excellence to the world. Held every couple of years, Sir Ben Ainsley is back helming the Ineos Team UK boat, hoping to claim victory for the UK. But a captain is only one part of the story. You need a boat, and that job falls to Nick Holrod, who has to create and craft around numerous restrictions and requirements, and most of that without the ability to physically test anything in the water. The answer has been to turn to Amazon's web services team. Known for hosting thousands of websites and services like Netflix, it's using its data capabilities for Nick to be able to crunch up to 1,200 detailed performance simulations every day. I started by asking what the America's Cup was and just why it's so important. So the America's Cup, um, it has a claim to fame as the oldest trophy in sports. So first contested in 1851. Um, and you know, for, for, for the average listener, I guess, saying it's the, the Formula One of yachting is, is probably the best description. And where does your role fit into that as, as chief designer? Uh, again, you know, it's a, a highly, highly technical sport and um, you know, what we do uh, is, is very, uh, very closely aligned with, with the same way that uh, F1 guys go about designing cars, we go around designing boats. And so, um, uh, you know, we have very similar facilities in terms of uh, sort of sailor in the loop uh, simulators and, and, and virtual reality environments to, to test things, etc. And my my job really is to uh, to try and steer a group of, of roughly 45, 50 people uh, in, in the design site to, over a three-year uh, program, try and produce the fastest bike. Now, I was very lucky in 2017 to go to Bermuda to see uh, Ben and the team, which was then Land Rover uh, BAR Racing, uh, trial and be testing their boat at that point. Uh, unfortunately, that since that attempt didn't didn't result in a win. What are you guys now doing to try and correct some of those some of those mistakes or some of the things that you've learned more likely from from that last race? I think the the, the big shift in um, boats. So starting two thousand and thirteen, we had kind of the first boiling multi hulls in, in the San Francisco event, uh, and they were a little bit kind of brute force, if you like, but you know quite quick boats. Then, as we went through uh, the Bermuda event, the boats became more and more refined, more efficient, uh, could could foil in lighter winds, could foil upwind, and, and we started to think about how to actually control a foiling boat accurately. And in, in, a, in essence, the boats have become more and more dynamic. So we're having to look at the kind of dynamics of the of the yacht and kind of engineer uh, the performance with those dynamics in mind, which is why I come back to the sort of things like the sailor in the loop simulator environment, et cetera. So really the big push over the, I guess over the last decade of yachting has been to um, increase the fidelity of, of the design tools and to increase the, the inclusion of the dynamic side of, of these boats and how they accelerate and how they you know, steer and, and perform. Uh, much more than than we ever used to in the past, so so it's, it's yeah the the focus on the, on the sort of simulation environment really is is where we uh, think we can start to make gains. 
And how do you, I was going to say, how do you go about increasing the dynamic elements of, of the boat? You know, is it just a case of, well, we'll just shave a little bit off here or, or do, is it a lot, I presume it's a lot more in depth than that? Um, yeah, essentially, I guess, yeah, 10 years ago, we used to sort of optimize the boat for their steady state, if you like, straight line performance. Now we are, you know, flying the, in, in the virtual environment, we're flying these boats through tacks and jibes and maneuvers. And we're looking at the way they accelerate and uh, and that sort of you know dynamic time domain simulation. So in order to do that, we need um, vastly more data of how the boat performs um, in in those sort of acceleration phases, phases, etc. Now I remember when I was seeing the boat, say two three years ago. Now um, there was a lot of data elements to it already, with the idea of it relaying data back to. Uh, back to a base station in, in, in Portsmouth and then kind of telling the, the skipper or, you know, whoever was controlling the boat, the perfect line based on wind speeds and stuff. Has that all now increased further to the point where these things could probably just, you know, control themselves? Um, at some level, they can control themselves, yes. But <laughs> yeah, yes, they have. And I, But the, the um, where we kind of have changed our usage of that off-the-water data is really in the way we use it to kind of validate the virtual environment you know, in in optimizing an, an engineering problem um, uh, you need two things in, in essence you need kind of high fidelity you need the model to accurately represent reality and so we take we spend a lot of time taking out on water data and comparing that to what the models are telling us about the boat and secondly, you need to be able to kind of iterate on the problem quickly. So we need to be able to kind of put new designs into the into the tools and say, is this one better than the previous one? And so that those are the kind of those are the two key items about kind of working in the virtual environment. Is you know I need high accuracy, um, I need all the physics included in in that model, and I need to be able to kind of crank the handle and, and iterate on that problem quickly. So within that, are you able to use that data? you know, the, the AWS power data, are you able to sort of replicate the state of the water that it could be based on weather conditions, et cetera, to be able to test that boat in a virtual environment to say, you know, it's not just the boat that's turning, you know, turning or, or heading which way it's yeah, going, but uh, the water uh, is doing this as well. Exactly. Um, so, so yes, the, the simulator when the guys are flying it, um, you know, it's effectively solving the physics equations of the yacht um, you know, many, many times a second. Uh, and, and feeding that information back through, you know, we have sort of force back, feedback through the steering wheel, so the, the helm's feeling uh, the way the yacht is, the guys are sitting on a motion platform, you know, they're, they're feeling the yacht moving underneath them, they're, they're, they're in a, a virtual reality environment, uh, so they can look around, they can see the competing yacht racing against them. And yes, we are feeding in wave states and wind shifts and, and all those kind of dynamic environmental factors as well. So it's not. This is not just a computer simulator with Ben and his team just sitting around in their shorts on laptops, going, "Oh, this is interesting. Let's. What if we do here?" You've, you've effectively you've you've built a like a holodeck. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, and, and to kind of come back to the your, your your mention of AWS, the the data required to uh, if you imagine the boat between upwind and downwind a range of boat speeds different heel angles different pitch angles uh, and we have to be able to kind of pre-compute the performance of the foils or the sail plan or what have you at all those different states and then if you know effectively kind of run 
in order to be able to run the model fast enough, we kind of fit uh, fit that data and uh, and then be able to kind of recall it very quickly as, as required in the simulation environment. So yeah, screeds and screeds of data pre-computed um, is really what feeds feeds the the animal here for us. And so the team themselves, they're sitting on a on a on a real version of the boat on a motion platform, pretending to be somewhere out in sea, uh, being tested. Why have you gone down that route rather than just getting on a boat and saying, "Oh, the wind looks like it's doing this today"? Um, well, first off, yeah, to, it's uh, these boats have a have a lead time to build of of uh, some fifteen plus months, so. You've got you, know, you start the campaign. You don't have physically have one, um, and then you know you've got to sort of sit there and design and optimize and and get there. So, so the actual physical arrival of the boat is is already halfway through the campaign, right? And then you know so then in terms of uh, there are some some restrictions within the the rules that we operate in that limit us to the uh, environments in which we can test. So we can't test. We can't build a foil and take it to a towing tank and, and test it in a in a closed, fluid environment. We can't we can't wind tunnel test rigs. Um, so anything anything that would you know a closed laboratory type environment is off limits to us. So we're forced to do all of that work uh, in the computational environment. And so, and do you think that's you know talking to different teams and different sports? There's always that sense of obviously the more testing, the more you know. There's always a belief that you're going to win. That's cool. You know, do you think this is the way to win? Uh, yes, absolutely convinced of it. Um, you know, your your ability to um, to uh, understand the whys. You know, sometimes you see things on the boat and you can say, okay, there's an effect I can measure, but it's hard to understand why, and it's hard to improve on that until you do understand the why. And that's where the the virtual environment um, is is critical to to allowing you to. Um, to, to increase that understanding and therefore iterate on that understanding and, and, and make improvements. And, and do you, is there an example where you, you, do you think you found something using virtual testing that you wouldn't have done if you'd just been on the water, you know, testing the team and, and doing it that way? Um, I, I mean, yes, the, I mean, the, the whole design of the boat, in, in essence, is, is, <laughs> is, is, is done, done in the virtual environment. The, the, yeah, at, at the launch of the boat, you then... Um, Go back, and and the education works both ways, right? You, when you, when you see something on the water that's un, unexpected, yeah, that that's gold dust because that's a that's some error in your modelling, or it's something you didn't anticipate, or uh, and that's that's an you know, an opportunity to improve. Yeah. And and as I say, in, in the in an optimization process, the higher the fidelity, the the better my model reflects reality, and and the faster I can iterate through the design choices, you know. Ultimately, the better, uh, better I will do. And so, fast forward through to perhaps not the next race, but say race number forty. We're at thirty-six, aren't we? I think is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, race forty. Where do you see the technology allowing it to, to take your ideas and your designs? Um. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we'll actually just be racing in the virtual environment. Um, yeah, and 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 in the whole COVID thing, I guess we've seen uh, actually yeah, some some successes with uh, you know 
uh, motorsport and, and people moving into the virtual environment and, and garnering significant audiences. Um, but but ultimately, uh, yeah, the it's in some ways you almost see the the um, competition converging or, or the competition, you know, the margins of the competition becoming finer and finer as the, your ability to resolve uh, detail improves and improves. And, and uh, so, you know, I think it's actually ultimately ends up being a really good thing for competition that you will end up with better and better, closer, closer racing over time. And do you feel that there's a, sometimes an over-reliance upon data in that sense of, you know, it's now getting to a point where you are working on improvements that are almost points of a percentage based on the analysis of data and understanding data and and moving that way and some people might say that that takes away from you know the skill of the of that craftsmanship to begin with from building it or the skill of the of the crew to be able to skip you know to be able to skip it and crew it no no far from it in fact um yeah and one of the things to remember this time around is we're operating in a uh, in a brand new class of boats, so our, our understanding, I would would suggest, is still relatively uh, relatively low. And that, you know, will you know, if you were to stay in the same class of boat without modifying the rule, then you know, maybe the, over time that starts to become an issue. But actually, the the interesting thing about the virtual environment is how well that starts to facilitate the the discussion and the um, between the between the sailors and the design team, for example, you know, at the end of the day, as a design team, you know, we have a customer, and that's a sailing team, and and they need a product that they can go out and um, you know do the job that they're charged with doing. And so, actually, the really interesting thing about uh, all of this data that really sits in the background and 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 drives the physics of the model behind you know the actions of of what the crew are doing, but the the whole of, simulation environment really um, kind of feeds that interaction in a, in a really interesting way. And uh, so, no, it, you kind of need to abstract the data and put it in the background and put it to good use, but you need to um, uh, actually the, the, the kind of fundamental interactions and, and, and the interest for me uh, are almost enhanced. In any other year, Ghost of Tsushima would be a PlayStation exclusive of the summer. The top tier game that would fly the flag for the PS4 during a traditionally quiet period of gaming. But this isn't any other year. And with The Last of Us 2 already taking much of the spotlight, is there any space left for an epic open world romp through feudal Japan? Yes, says the developer's sucker punch. And Rick Henderson has been playing to find out. So is it the PlayStation 4's last hurrah? It very much is in technical terms in the fact that uh, it is that possi- quite possibly the PlayStation 4's last exclusive before the PlayStation 5 arrives and all games will be developed cross-platform. Um, of course, it comes a month straight after uh, The Last of Us Part 2, which in my opinion was the was really sort of like the, the, the last swan song of the PlayStation <laughs> 4. Uh, Ghost of Tsushima came along, and I really like it, but it's not been as widely accepted and revered as, say, The Last of Us Part Two. It's very much a Marmite game, I think. So let's rewind slightly for people that aren't 100% aware of the game. Can you give us 26 words or less? I'm thinking that moment in the player, you know, the rain's coming down, 
lanterns light up, its car stops. What what's it about? What what do you have to do? Ghost of Tsushima is developed by Sucker Punch, who did inf- the infamous series of games previously. It is a massively open world action adventure based in feudal Japan. Um, essentially, in many ways, you could call it Assassin's Creed Samurai, because right. uh, you play a samurai who um, whose uh, fellow samurais are all killed in one massive battle during the Mongol invasion of Tsushima. And you then wander about this massively open world environment, collecting other people to help you battle back against the Mongol army. Um, it's very, I love it. I'm a big fan of all the Assassin's Creed and the infamous games anyway. Um, but I can understand some of other people's reticence. And so what's your favorite bit about the game? Um, I love the world. The game world is incredible. Uh, Sucker Punch clearly are massive fans of Japanese cinema and specifically samurai cinema. The films of um, Kurosawa, for example, um, like The Seven Samurai is probably the most famous one. Um, They absolutely adore these movies to the extent where they've made an almost Tarantino-esque homage to them in this game. And for me, what what I like about it is I'm not a mass... I, I don't know an awful lot about the source material myself. So learning more about feudal japan and learning more about the um the the, the different um, nuances between different styles of samurai and different types of um of uh, of the way that people in in that time period lived is really in, is great it's a bit like um i the same with assassin's creed odyssey um i knew quite a lot about um greek mythology but it's great to sort of like wander about ancient greece that is well researched and well mm. put together um the other thing about the world that the, the island of tsushima and beyond um because it is a massive massive map that you get to explore um is it's beautifully rendered absolutely stunning um the the color schemes as well with the use of hdr specifically are just extraordinary and most of the time you can actually just spend sitting on a hillside and looking at your surroundings mm-hmm. because it is so magnificent um some don't find that that sort of like overweighs the gameplay and and they're not so keen on that but i actually think that the gameplay is perfectly fine within that situation itself very zen then in that sense very much so in fact there are even sections where you have tranquility moments sitting in pools to replenish your health or um you can actually there are certain points on the map that if you find them you can create haikus and so what's the bit that you felt didn't really work the one caveat i think is is more a caveat to open world action adventure games generally um there's been an awful lot of them and they all seem to suffer the same problem which is repetition repetition in enemy types and repetition in mission types and at times yes in ghost of shima just like in far cry games or the assassin's creed games there are times where you just feel like it's it, it you know you're just repeating exactly the same movements having exactly the same battles and doing exactly the same tasks but these are all the optional tasks um, the main mission structure and the story is very different as you go through, and I love that. It's very, very good. But the actual side missions sometimes can get repetitive. But to be honest, because you're boosting up your character by doing them, you don't mind. You actually will do them just to boost your character, and they don't take long. 
Cool. And so overall, a yes from Rick? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of this genre of game, and uh, and this is a very fine example of it. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, pip pip. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.